1: Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today.
0: It's the fighting. It's the fighting. cock. It's, it's the fighting. Clock.
1: Oh, that was really interesting, mate. Yeah.
2: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Fighting Cock, the Extra Inch. Uh, this time, number six is going to be called stats i think because i'm joined by two of the sharpest statistical minds in the twitter sphere and also a newlywed
3: bardi bardi my sidekick and best friend welcome back to the extra inch thanks for having me back Wendy. i how? missed i missed the last one i listened to it with tears in my eyes with, with coxie as well how good yeah, was he he was really good i had um i really wanted to meet him and i couldn't so um i felt really jealous i was hoping to be like a power cut or something would go wrong so you could get him back <laughs> How's married life treating you so far? Uh, it's been two weeks. It's been okay. I'm a man with responsibilities <laughs> now. I've got things to look after and things to take care of. It's good. And you're looking very tanned? Yeah, well, Colombia's quite hot. It's near the equator, so it's, it's sunny on occasion. What were the temperatures like? Um, it hit like 38 degrees at some points, and then in other parts of the country, it was just pure humidity. It was like trying to walk through a steam room constantly. <laughs> nice.
2: Well, you're looking very well, mate, and it's Cheers. good to have you back. Also joined by our tactics guy, Nathan how's it going mate good thank you how are you Nate? yeah not bad uh spoilers you're about to mention
4: it's been a year since our first episode and yes. uh, in that time i've lost uh nearly four and a half stone so that was a nice little that's impressive of where I'm at. very so, no, impressive well done to that's you that's the zone i'm in
2: <laughs> <laughs> and i'm delighted to welcome duncan alexander from opta who you may know on twitter as oily sailor duncan welcome hello good to have you here thanks for having me um I mean, we, you've got a book out at the moment, which we're going to spend some time talking about later and give you an opportunity to to plug that and uh, tell us all about it. But we're going to start off by talking about XG or expected goals, because this season analytics have gone mainstream. Um, match of a day is using XG, which is quite surprising. But um, you told me an interesting thing earlier that, that you pitched that to them.
5: Yeah, well, it's obviously a, a model we developed um, four or five years ago, which is slowly caught on um in the professional clubs and you know the blogosphere um we made a decision early this year to try and you know push it out to the media more the more traditional media um and match today obviously is uh, you know possibly the most traditional in the sense that it's the you know it's the one bit of football that my mum watches so um i'm not sure she's quite grasped xg yet <laughs> but you know at least she can see it so have you had much feedback so far Uh, There was quite a lot on the first match today of the season. Um, I had a look on Twitter and, yeah, there were some people who were pleased, but there were some people who were uh, displeased or (laughs) angry, shall we say. But, I mean, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, anything new tends to to, uh, lose some of the crowd. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, and, you know, football fans are so divided into the types of fan that they are. Um, Just, I mean, we did speak about XG briefly in the last... Extra Inch, uh, number five, with Michael Cox. And Nathan, I thought, gave a really good um, sort of summary of how it works. But, Duncan, when you were on the Totally Football show recently, you said that you felt that XG tells the hidden story behind the game, which I really liked. I like that um, way of describing it. How would you kind of explain what XG is to someone who's never heard of the term before?
5: Yeah, I think possibly the, the term XG turns a few people off, um, particularly the word expected. I think a lot of people tend to think that it is... It's kind of a predictive thing that's looking to the future, which it isn't. It, it's basically a look at chance quality. Um, you know, we've got a database of over, you know, three, four hundred thousand shots. So each one of those shots has taking place in a specific point on the pitch with a specific um, scenario, being you know, a counter-attack or a corner. Um, and we can also look at things about, like how the shot was taken. Was it with a foot? Was it with a head? So you put all these factors together and you basically work out an average for each type of chance in a particular location. Um, and then when a player, an individual player... a team has a shot you can then rate that against the average so that's all it does so um as you'd expect some players are, are better than the average um and some players aren't i mean and what you know the thing about telling the hidden story i think you know every fan knows they've come out of games and said oh you know our striker you know could have had a hat full today or you know our player scored scored in his last four games but he's playing terribly you know sometimes reality doesn't tell the actual truth of, of what's going on and this kind of hopefully gets uh, underneath that a little bit interesting we had a
2: question from Seamus Hart um because there are there are multiple sort of models of XG that different people have developed over a number of years and Seamus asked uh, which is the best XG model and why um, and should people with no understanding of XG models be using XG if they don't know what it actually means? Which I thought was an interesting <laughs> follow up question. Also, do you have a do you have a theory on which is the best model? Well,
5: or? I mean, they're all pretty similar. Mm. Um, you know, they all the, you know, the the differences between them are, are pretty minute. Yeah. Um, some might weigh you know certain elements a little bit higher than others. Um, obviously, I would obviously say that ours is the best, but I think it pro- probably is because we've got the biggest database. You know. Mm. We, You know, a lot of the other ones are based on smaller subsets of data that people glean through various ways. And, um, you know, we can actually, uh, you know, we we can weight different competitions slightly differently. So if you take a league in, I don't know, Scandinavia, you might weight that slightly lower than La Liga or the Premier League because, you you know... it's pretty obvious that scoring a goal there is easier to do than in a top league. So we we have the ability to do that. um, And we're always looking to kind of um, tweak it. And, you know, even this season or the end of the season, I think, you know, there might be a a good uh, tweak that we're going to do as well. Mm, Interesting.
3: I think one of the criticisms of XG has been the fact that it's quite a... It's quite a rational kind of statistic to apply to a game in a sport which is completely irrational and you have a situation like at the end of a game where your team has lost maybe for example Spurs against Manchester United where we had a higher XG rating I think and it's just like you now have to explain to somebody who's already furious that they've lost and say but we expected to score more goals and then their instant reaction is but we didn't and it kind of like there was the famous um, Craig Burley against Marcotti after the after, the, after Bayern Munich got knocked out to Atletico, I think it was 2016, where it was just like ideal and results kind of quotes come from. And I think that's where a lot of the criticism for XG comes from, that you're applying something rational to something which makes people totally irrational.
2: And that was massively highlighted when Michael Cayley, who's um, a big Spurs fan um, based in, in New York, who's also a kind of football analytics guy, he posted his uh, XG Um, findings from the Real Madrid and Spurs tie which had Real Madrid at 2.1 and Spurs at 0.8 and the reaction to that was was pretty harsh to say the least. People were not impressed, I guess, by the fact that he was posting that after one of the most Mm -hmm. historic results in in Spurs' recent history. Um, I mean, in Michael's defence, he posts the XG after every game, like pretty much right after the game. So there was nothing unusual about the fact that he'd done that. Um, but I guess it's just, like you say, this dispassionate take on
3: football, which, which got people's backs up. Yeah, and it's a kind of like the Brendan Rogers take on it, that we won possession, so we should have won the game. And it does get people's backs up a little bit.
4: I, f- I feel, I think the the Spurs' reaction was that, um, that Michael was taking away from the result. And I... Um, I don't think that, that is, I can understand why people would have that reaction and the sort of the entitlement that comes with the term "expected goals." Um, but I, I think you, you can watch that game and say, "Well yeah, Real Madrid had all the ball, and they made a lot of chances, but we snatched it, and to overachieve expected goals is an achievement in itself. Um, and just because Real Madrid created higher quality chances, doesn't mean there isn't um, a lot of pride and a lot of joy to take from that game.
5: I think this is quite a key point, it's is how you present it, isn't it? Because as a, as a neutral watching that game, it was a brilliant game. You know, two teams playing, both playing well but in slightly different ways. But, you know, Madrid clearly had more chances, mm. but Tottenham handled them really well at the same time. You, you, one data point isn't going to tell the whole story of a match. There's obviously going to be a lot of nuance in there. Mm. Um, and I think that is, again, key to how you present stuff. So you don't want to be... You know, you don't want to be a zealot and sort of say this this one number is going to revolutionise football because it's not. You know, what was the rationale um, for for match of a day using
2: XG rather than XGD, which is the difference between expected goals scored and conceded?
5: Uh, just, I think that's probably even more of a of a you know complicated idea. To, <laughs> so to too get. much for people to to take in. At- yeah, I mean, even XG, it's going to take a few years before it becomes. You know, if you, if you go back ten, fifteen years assists were seen as kind of a mysterious yeah. work of the devil that would never catch on but they, they really are kind of just part and parcel of the game now you know everyone knows what an assist is um, and it does take a while for these things to filter through but you, there will be a difficult period where it is you know new in inverted commas um, and you just have to work through that and, and hopefully you know people will get it sooner rather than later So with that in mind, which do you
2: think is the next underlying stat that's going to hit the mainstream as such?
5: Yeah, so we've got one, we've got a few, we've got expected assists, which is also out, which is, you know, as you might expect, a similar uh, model in some respects to expected goals. It basically um, looks at every completed pass and applies the chance of it becoming an assist. So obviously a, a pass between two central defenders is pretty much got negligible chance of being an assist, but if you're playing a lot of passes, you know, into good positions, you can you can apply expected assists, but again that's possibly even more complicated to get your head round than expected goals. But one that I think really will um work in terms of kind of the public grasping it quite quickly is the thing we've got called sequences. So we can you know, we all, we've always collected individual events but now we're able to link them together. So, you know, there's always been players who might have been key to um, a chain of events but will not necessarily have a goal or an assist. So if you, in a Spurs context, you know, Christian Eriksen um, last season was first or second in terms of being involved in sequences that led to a shot. I think he was top, actually. So he might not have played the final pass, but he was always in that chain of events. Similarly, Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal's, you know... He, especially him he didn't have a season that sort of leapt off the you know in people's imagination but he was always involved in, in everything they did and it's kind of it's kind of again under you know finding that hidden kind of uh, contributor really mm-hmm.
2: interesting and I guess Luca Modric would be another fine example yeah. of someone who, who when you watch him you might not think he's he's doing much that affects the game but we know that actually exactly. he's doing a whole bunch of stuff that affects the game exactly. but it just might not be that visible yeah
5: and in, in the Sats, we're not you know, like I said, we're not zealots, and also we we take on board what people say. You know, the, the historical criticisms of, of stats, things like you know, OX might have a past completion of ninety five percent, but they're all sideways. You know, we're trying to, we're always striving to kind of put more context around events, and and hopefully, you know, tell a better story. So, what do you, when when people like Graham Sunes, who who's come out this week, and he's
2: he was speaking in the paper about Pascal Gross, who's the um, Brighton attacking midfielder they signed from Germany in the Bundesliga. And Suness has made this point that Gross was shown to have created 95 chances last season and and only had four assists, and Sunes seems particularly angry about this point and and how someone can be using it to promote this player. What do you think that does for for people like you in your industry? Do do you feel like it sets you back when someone as high profile as Graeme Souness is saying
5: something like that? Not really. I think, you know, I touch on it in the book actually because there's a whole chapter about Liverpool going <clears throat> 27 years without the title. And you know, when Soonest came in to Liverpool in the 90s, he was, he's a bit, you know, wrongly maligned in a sense. He he actually was more progressive then. and he'd come from you know recently played in Italy and stuff. So. You know, but I guess as people get older, they can't become a little bit more entrenched in their views. I mean, that point was very the point he made about possession was sort of fair enough. But the one about the chances and assists, you, you know, you could put Messi in a Sunday League team. He might make a lot of chances, but no one takes them. It doesn't mean he's not a good player. Um, you could argue that Brighton's scouting was good there because they found a player that, you know, was very creative, but possibly went under the radar because he wasn't, you know, assisting a lot of goals.
4: The, the, the point he made about possession is, is essentially the one you made a minute ago about how a player can have 95% pass completion, but then he says um, those passes can all just be five yards to the left and five yards to the right. Well, five yards is a statistic, and that's a piece of information that you can apply to pass completion. You can say this player had this pass completion with an average length of this or an average zone of this. So his argument against statistics is based on statistics.
2: Yeah. So he shot himself in the foot, essentially. I, I think so. And what he was saying was ultimately that the the stat is ridiculous. But actually, you could use that stat to prove that that stat's ridiculous. So, what's he arguing about?
4: What he's finding ridiculous is the um, conscious misuse of statistics mm-hmm. to create narratives, to create stories that are or aren't there. Um, and I think we all feel that way. But that that sort of giving statistics a bad name, and that's that's the overriding issue.
3: I think there's something that Duncan touched on in his book. It's about the um, I think you, you, you actually said the nerdy approach to analysing all of a sudden it's, going, it's, getting, it's clashing with the kind of dressing room culture and the kind of macho kind of image of football and it's just like get getting stuck in and all this kind of stuff and it will take time for people to understand it and to be honest with you there's, there are, Sam Allardyce somebody who's um, renowned as being like a long ball merchant and stuff he was one of the first to actually start using data to his advantage so that it is happening but I guess it's going to take even longer for people on the terraces and stuff to kind of accept that this is where the game's going. This is the revolution of the game now.
2: I really want to talk more about the dressing room culture and how they've taken to, to statistics, but can we just first touch upon the data collection element? Because we were talking before we started recording and I was
3: fascinated by the, the method that's used by Opta to... to to get this information in the first place. Yeah, in my head, I just imagined like um, an p- airplane hangar full of people with like headphones on and little click- a clicker, and you know, like a bouncer in a club as someone goes in, <laughs> clicks, clicks, clicks. So each time passes complete, one hand for incomplete, one hand <laughs> for complete. And that's in my head, that's what was going on. So how does it work Duncan? Yeah, I wouldn't,
5: I wouldn't hire any of them as bouncers. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, no we've we've had the same analysis system since about 2006. We've obviously, you know, tweaked it in the interim, but um it's custom built software. We essentially get a it's done two people one home for the, one person for the home team one person for the away team and a third person who kind of QA's the data as it comes through um the they get a screen where they can have they get video footage of the match but then they have to transpose that obviously 3D image to 2D a 2D pitch so obviously the the camera will track the ball roughly in the center when it films a football match but they then have to um say you know this pass came from the edge of the the D to the left flank and it, it's a you know, you not only have to have amazing knowledge of of the team and players, particularly if you're doing a, a far-flung league, but you have to have that kind of lateral thinking where you you know you are not panicking and you're constantly just collecting the data. And it is you know it takes about six months for the guys to be to be trained and let loose. And it is you know they collect around two thousand bits of data a match. Um, so it's full-on. I mean, they're the only people that absolutely love a, a very serious injury because they can, uh, you know, just Have breathe. a break. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> have a little rest. So what about things like d- ground distance covered by individual players? Is that... Is we don't collect that, but we get access to it for certain competitions. You know, for instance, it, in the Premier League, we're the official data supplier, so we can access that information. Um, I think there is going to be... Some big advances in uh, statistics in terms of combining data sets. That's very much kind of the way things are going. So if you can combine, you know, our event data with, with tracking data, you can suddenly look at, you know, players who are uh, making them overlapping runs. You can look at players who are particularly good at shooting under pressure, things like that. So it kind of opens up a whole sort of, you know, new set of, of data points. So so uh, would that with the tracking data, would it be
2: literally like a like a heart monitor on a player? Would would be able to track the number of sprints they've made or the amount of distance they Well, the, covered, the, basically,
5: the, the tracking world now is, is two kind of two approaches there's optical which is obviously cameras in the ground which um, relies on a lot of technology and you know access to grounds mm. and stuff but at least you're not reliant on the player having to remember to wear wearable tech obviously most clubs will use wearable wearables in training to track stuff uh, a couple of years it is now since fifa approved that for in-game i know swansea and the premier league do it um, Wickham who I support did it on the first of the season a couple of years back against Plymouth and Plymouth refused to play the match and I'm Not sure because they're from Devon and a bit scared of technology but they, um, <laughs> the Wickham secretary had to go in and print off the letter from the Football League saying it was okay to wear them but I mean I think it's interesting actually League 1 League 2 teams have been doing that more because they obviously have less data generally so they're kind of more keen on collecting it in game in that sense but that's it's,
2: so fascinating so were, Plymouth may have been scared that Wickham were going to have this competitive advantage where at half time they'd be able to read off this data and say right you're doing this wrong you're doing this wrong.
5: possibly although I think it was more that the you know they were worried it, they, they were claiming it would be dangerous jumping at corners and stuff but I mean players wear it in rugby and stuff it can't yeah. be that bad but
2: That's bizarre. (laughs) But that brings us on nicely to something else I wanted to speak about, which is the the use of data at at clubs. Um, And there's been enormous growth in analytics departments, and we saw it at Spurs when we brought in Paul Mitchell from Southampton with his famed black box. don't know how long that lasted, probably about as long as Paul Mitchell. Um, But we know that Spurs were using a lot of data for recruitment, but also for match analysis, They were using it post training. They were using the black box to show videos and um, sort of had their own editing suite for that kind of thing. Do you have any insight into how and how much clubs are using data to analyse matches and and player performance?
5: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I can't really go into specific examples at clubs because they're (laughs) understandably keen on keeping that to themselves. You know, we work with pretty much every major club in Europe and around the world, and, you know, we're not the only. Uh, player in that space either, so you know there's plenty of others as well, and they. I, I wouldn't think there's a single club in the top uh, division of any major competition that isn't using data in some way. What's interesting or not interesting, as the case may be, but it kind of. It only, often only ever gets brought out when there's either a, a very strange success, like Leicester City win the league, or where the manager gets sacked and is kind of looking for a bit of a excuse. I remember when Brendan Rodgers left Liverpool, there was a, he had a, there was a few articles in various places sort of bemoaning their um, transfer committee. Although if you actually look at the players the committee signed, like Firmino, uh, etc., been pretty good compared to the ones that were, you know, done more traditionally so, um, you know, as you say it's done for recruitment, it's done for player performance, it's, you know, opposition uh, we hold an event every February called the Opt Pro Forum OptoPro is our kind of professional club wing um, where people from the industry, be they kind of amateurs or from clubs, will come and present, and the first year there was a really interesting one by a, a guy um, who works at Manchester City and he actually showed how uh, they take up to data. They make pass. They sort of pull out passing patterns. And then he showed a video of um, Pellegrini, as it was at the time, on the training pitch, physically moving Yaya Touré and Silva around. Uh, it was actually for a, a game against Tottenham. Um, and then they, he showed the game. I think it was, they win five 0 or five one at White Lane. And uh, three of the or three or four of the goals basically came from them intercepting in those exact passing channels. So it was a really interesting kind of. Example of how a club will take raw data, do something with it, apply that to the training pitch, and then move on to a, to a match scenario. As um, as Spurs fans,
3: I think we're the only ones who didn't celebrate Leicester's kind of miraculous title. Yeah. Um, how far would you say that they're? Was it a combination of data and luck, and the right manager and the right players at the right time, or was it was that was their success all down
5: to them using the data? And it definitely wasn't all down to data. I mean, as many people have pointed out, you know, football is such a low-scoring game that luck will play a disproportionately high. In football, compared to other sports, so you know you could repeat that season many times, and you can you can run it on various different metrics. And sometimes Spurs will win, sometimes Arsenal will win, Leicester less than those two, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I think what the two interesting things with Leicester when they won the league were a obviously their recruitment was very good, and that was very data led so you know get um, not only buying Kante but buying him from a team that played in a very similar fashion to them so it wasn't like he had to come in you know we've all seen players come into the Premier League who are good players but really struggle to adapt because they're basically playing in a completely different way to, to how they used to whereas Kante was able to basically just carry on and he has obviously a Chelsea as well but um, and the other thing was really interesting was the way Leicester completely changed their approach halfway through the season so the first half of the season was all about Vardy and Mares, and you know counter but, you know, Premier League teams are pretty adept at adapting and half halfway through the season um Leicester kinda of been figured out and then they they basically became this amazing defensive team and they won all those games I think they won was it five in a row, one nil, which is mm. pretty unprecedented. Um and that basically was what won them won them the title in the end. Um, you know, Spurs for sort of semi-valiant attempt at hunting them down but they they didn't really after after the arsenal game when the arsenal fan uh, team were doing the selfies in the dressing room they didn't really have another slip and and that was the kind of most impressive thing really they got figured out and then they worked out another way of doing it
2: do you have a feel at all for sort of the size of analytics departments at clubs and whether they've grown over the last few years because i mean we hear so little about it in in the mainstream media and it's as a fan you don't really have an idea of how much data is being used I mean we would like to hope that when it comes to recruitment especially that we'd be using a lot of underlying data to identify players but then we go and sign someone like Muta Sissoko for 30 million pounds so you sort of you begin to doubt whether it's actually happening another example would be Clinton and G I mean it seemed like a completely bizarre signing and in hindsight it's you know maybe slightly less so because he's gone on to do better but the fact remains that he didn't seem to be a good fit in any way for the team. So you sort of start to question what the
5: club's looking at. Yeah, football's quite strange in the sense that you know, it has a transfer window where you can do, you can spend months researching and years researching players and making sure they fit, and then, you know, you lose the first two games of the season and everyone panics and it's like, get some, we need some bodies in and all that stuff. So, you know, the susceptibility to panic is still quite big, but I, mean, you know, all the top Premier League teams will have very extensive departments and not, and I think they're diversifying more and more. So, um, I think people are kind of realise that you're not ever going to kind of find the kind of holy holy grail stat like you did in baseball for instance um and it's going to be more sort of you know marginal gains ish kind of approach where you know little little kind of advances here and there will will make a difference be that in recruitment or tactics or, or whatever
4: i've uh i've sort of been poking my nose around uh jobs in the industry a little bit, and uh what I often find is is from including Premier league clubs but football league clubs um advertised for a performance analysis and that includes all variation of tasks all the way from coding which you mentioned earlier which is watching the match and, and recording all the things that happen through to presenting the data and the tactical analysis and all the stuff of that and that, that to me indicates fairly small staff uh, committed to that side of things so I, I suspect that um, there's still quite a way to go within clubs yeah, I
5: think generally, I think you can probably pick out a couple. I mean, Manchester City are probably the the most advanced, I'd say, in that respect in terms of size of department and and. But yeah, it it will take a bit of time, obviously. But I think it is. Um, I think probably the biggest disconnect is, is kind of converting it into a language that managers and or chairman will accept. Mm. And that is, it's all very well having the, a bunch of really clever guys that can analyse football and come up with good stuff, but if you, if you're not presenting it in the right way, it's never gonna. Reach that, you know, and I know people in the industry who've who've worked for clubs who, you know, they just can't get through to the manager, and that's where it kind of falls apart. But I think this is
3: one of the beautiful things I like about Pochettino is I know there's a lot of science and everything else behind it, but when you still look at him and the way he brings through younger players like Kane, Winks, and stuff, there's still kind of like a little bit of romanticism about it. That someone like Kane, who I don't know whether he ticked the boxes as a youngster then all of a sudden explodes onto the scene like that that's what I quite like about Pochettino's Tottenham He seems to be kind of a mix between the old and the new in,
2: in his style of management he's he's very much a gut feel kind of guy and, and I don't just mean his gut feel but he'll take the gut feel of the players and he'll mm. listen to them and he'll he'll really take that into consideration when he makes a decision about, about their performance or their participation in a match so if the player doesn't feel right for whatever reason he'll that's a big deal to him you know, that's he, what, yeah that's what makes you think Sissoko wasn't probably anything to do with him what well, you, you think that no I don't think so it was just forced upon him yeah. he, he said I want a player that matches these criteria said, here you go <laughs> <laughs> have yeah. yeah lucky guy so let's talk a bit about your book Duncan mm. so you, you've you've published this um, book outside the box where did the idea come from is this something you kind of always had in mind to do
5: yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've worked in the kind of data industry for uh ten or twelve years now, so I've seen, you know, data go from a, a super niche kind of thing through to, you know, fairly mainstream, but still not actually mainstream. Um and I don't come from a, a data background. I sort of did history and, you know, my love of football stems from, from reading shoot and match when I was a kid. So I kind of wanted to do a history of football particularly sort of history of the Premier League, given it was 25 years of the Premier League, um, with numbers, but not kind of numbery. So it's kind of a narrative history of the Premier League and other things like the World Cup and and various other things, um, using numbers, but still, you know, you you don't have to be into data to read it. It should, well, hopefully it should be appealing to everyone.
2: So the idea is that it's accessible to anyone, regardless of whether they've got a particular interest in numbers. Yeah, it's
5: more kind of using numbers to debunk stuff or or highlight things that people might have forgotten or you know that sort of thing. I finished the the book on on the plane
3: on the way back from um, from my wedding. And I thought you were quite brave in writing a whole chapter, almost like trolling Liverpool. About <laughs> <laughs> you went, you listed every single year that
5: they hadn't won the league and why they hadn't won the league. Mm. I, I, I was quite brave of you to so, do well, that. So some Liverpool fans have enjoyed that. Some haven't. <laughs> sure, but, um, I think I've, I, it's possibly my favourite bit of the book. I think I, it. It's almost extraordinary Liverpool gone 27 years that mm. like, the league. If you'd have said to a Liverpool fan in 1990, you know, before you win the league again, Leeds will. they would have been confused Blackburn they'd have been very confused he said Leicester they'd have you know just walked off I think but it you know they've come close a lot of times I think the interesting thing is if you if you go through it each mm. season as I did every time they've come close that summer the media who love Liverpool obviously have been like next year it's their bat it's their year and they've always just fallen away massively mm. they've never been able to sustain two or three years so. I, I didn't realize how many times they had come quite close I mean, there was more than just
3: the Benitez. There was the years when Manchester United had finished third and they'd come second. and they seemed like genuine title well, champions. Yeah,
5: Phil Thompson almost took them to the title, mm. which is a strange <laughs> concept. Um, that you know they won you know a lot of games in the season. It was the year Arsenal one two. Arsenal won the last thirteen. So um, and then yeah, Roy Evans only did it, and obviously the Benitez won and the Rodgers won, but. Um, yeah, a bit, a bit like Spurs at Leicester. You could replay a lot of those seasons and, and Liverpool would have won the league, but the fact is they haven't. So
2: Was that Liverpool pattern something that you always had in your head when you were writing the book, or was it something that came to you through research?
5: Uh, it was more that it, I kind of. Spo- I mean, that's the beauty of working with numbers, really, is that you might be. I mean, a lot of the stuff we put on up to Joe is, isn't necessarily stuff we've thought of it's stuff we've found while we're looking for something else so you someone will ask you you know the last time is harry kane the first player to do blah 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 and as you're doing as you're researching that you find something else and you know and and before social media those sort of things would just disappear into the ether but now there's a a hopefully good channel to push it out on
2: you must get thousands of requests a week from people tweeting up to joe Mm.
5: yeah some of them better than others (laughs) (laughs)
2: you get some very niche niche requests yeah
5: yeah we do I mean we always do on April Fool's Day we always put some April Fool's ones out and those ones will get quoted like months later and you're like I wish we hadn't said that because everyone (laughs) thinks it's true but
3: as a as a Tottenham fan, immediately my eyes are always drawn to um, any stat involving Tottenham, and I didn't realise that King actually did play. Man, he managed to play one full season, two oh four oh five. He played all thirty eight Premier League games, yeah. and that that just blew my mind. I thought we'd never were able to squeeze a whole season out of him. Oh, that's just before it all hit, wasn't it? And then there was another one which I, I said I was going to call call you out, where you actually used the term Spursy, where Tottenham are the team that's lost that's lost the. Um, had those most often led at half time and then gone on to lose the game. Oh. I saw that stat and I was just like,
4: "I remember that we had that that stat came up a couple of years ago and we we've, we've the, we're the opposite as well. We've, yeah. we've the most times that we've been losing, we've come over. So we're we're an absolute chaotic roller coaster of a club. <laughs> um, but it's
5: one of my pet hates is that, and it's not just it's not restricted to Tottenham. Every fans of every club do it whenever their team lets a lead slip. They're like, well, that's typical <laughs> yeah. Huddersfield, or you know. Yeah. It, it, it happens to everyone it's like you know but
2: Spurs more than the rest
3: <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is Harry Kane is the striker with the most own goals in, in Premier
5: League mm, history already he's just rack- it's quite I mean if you think of the way he plays he'll, he'll be back defending more yeah. than say Aguero would or someone but it is you know it's a good job he's scoring so many together uh,
3: the off the top of my head I can remember two there was the one against Swansea and Sunderland yeah. I can't remember the other one
4: I think he's often at the near post on corners mm. a lot so, and that's a, it's easy to
2: glance horrible, one
4: Yeah yeah, To just sort of yeah. Shin it or yeah, whatever. Exactly. He didn't,
3: didn't he take a
2: crazy swipe At one that just flew Into the top of the that net was Swansea. Well? That was Swansea But yeah. I
3: do remember Bale scoring one Against Liverpool Where he kicked it Into, into his, his own, own face, face. Oh, yes. Ah yeah. oh, yes I'll never forget that <laughs> He scored the, at the other end As well for that one I the, guess.
5: the year Liverpool Almost won the league Under Rodgers And Martin Skirtle Scored four in one season <laughs> Good going.
2: That's Good impressive in on. one year. I think Richard Dunn scored the most in goals. He he was famous for it. it just it felt like he's he scored for a season for about ten years. Yeah, I think he's the only
5: one in double figures, which is again impressive. Carragher must And have Carragher scored more Premier
3: League yeah. goals for Spurs than he did for Liverpool.
5: That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and I missed that
3: because um, because we've had this um, big vacuum in our right hand side of our team when Walker left has been replaced by Trippier. I've become a little bit obsessed with um, Trippier doing take ons, and. Um, it, one of your thing, one of in one of the articles you talked about a guy whose birthday is today, Maradona, who managed to do ninety dribbles mm. in the eighty six World Cup, and I was just like, Kieran Trippier hasn't done one in like two <laughs> seasons, and Maradona did like ninety in ten games.
2: I, I think you'll find that Trippier has done one, and, and, and done Nathan's one? got a thread uh, on Twitter about his take on which I've, is genius. Yeah, I've done a sort of uh, an ironic
4: cut up to with sort of um, over the top dubstep to his. Two, three take on so far, and they're all backwards, and and they're all followed by just like a sideways sort of backwards pass at least so his take
3: on is running back towards his own goal, yeah. Oh, yeah. How amazing, desperately seeking
2: safety <laughs> bless him, bless him, so in terms of going back to your book duncan what what did you find what was the toughest part of writing a book was it just getting started i I imagine that just Taking on an enormous task like that must be really kind of scary.
5: Yeah, pres- uh, pressing Control N on a Word document is always <laughs> a, a tough moment. But um, I think this one, because obviously the year before I did the Opto Joe Football Yearbook, that one, uh, I think the, the second one was harder in the sense it covered the history. I mean, it goes back to the nineteenth century in places, so it was a lot more to kind of condense. And, and but I think it was more enjoyable because you're just covering a lot more stuff. Um, yeah, so it, I, mean, I don't think there was any particular bits that were harder than others. It was just, it's a it's a big old task, you know. Were you doing this just in your spare time? Um, no, I did it as part of work as well. So, so it's part of a project at work yeah, as well. Yeah. As work. But I mean, it was a mixture, so. Yeah. But it is, I mean, anyone who's who's written a book will, will you know, agree that it is, you have to get into a certain mindset. Some days you can bang out 2,000 words and some days, you know, you've struggled with 200. So really? yeah. And was it a case that you were kind of researching as you went along, or
2: were you? Did you do a lot of research before you started writing?
5: It depends on the bit. So there's a uh, there's a chapter about why World Cups aren't exciting anymore, and kind of we to a few years ago went back and analysed um, every World Cup from 1966 onwards, not out of some you know, mad England thing, but just because that was the first World Cup where every game was televised, so obviously we need the TV footage to, to collect the data. So we have a complete record of every World Cup from '66. so you can compare Cruyff and Pelé and Maradona and stuff, which is really cool, but you can, in the chapter, in the book, it basically goes through the different eras of World Cups, and, and like you said, Maradona was exceptional, you know, mm. but he played in a very not only is the dribbles high but he was fouled a ridiculously high number yep. of times over like 90 times across two World Cups um, which is in, you know and I I sort of wonder whether he obviously was one of the greatest players ever but it's almost like he was suited to that sort of football you know he was he was so sort of squat and strong that if you know Peter Reed's flying in at your knees he could handle it Messi probably couldn't but you know yeah, that's why, why I don't think you can pe- can compare players that across eras that much because but
3: Maradona actually said the English treated him quite fairly mm. so I think maybe because in 82 he had the Italians kicking him and then he had the Koreans early in um, in, in 86 who properly butchered him as well
5: they, the England did still foul him nine times in the uh yeah. yeah, final in 86 uh, I suppose that was relatively fair <laughs> yeah, targeted they, to some extent just Excuse- got us back
3: as well, they, well Eng, England, well, England uh, foul in Argentina is something that's always happened I think in your book as well, Alan Ball fouled, uh, made thirty-five fouls against Argentina in '66. It's so funny because we always think of them as the dirty team. As the dirty team, we?
5: yeah. I think it was a total England fouls, was, but it's the. I think it's yeah. the most fouls in any World Cup game without a booking. So obviously that game's famous for Alf Ramsey saying that they were animals, but who were the real animals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but <Hashtag> I, <laughs> I, I'm a big
3: lover of the World Cup, and I will continue to. See the merit in World Cups. The fact that it's only four years and it's not quite as um, diluted as the Champions League. As I, I admit, the Champions League is probably a higher quality. But for me, I think the fact that the World Cup is so spaced apart and the fact that you've got countries who can't go and spend fifty million by players and stuff—they they're kind of limited with the talent they've got. I think that for me, that will always give it the edge over a Champions League.
5: Yeah, I do make the point actually that I think it's very much geographically based. So in England. England have been so bad in World Cups for such a long time now that you know people are disillusioned whereas you go to a country that's just you go to Costa Rica I'm sure they're absolutely loving the World Cup at the moment because the last one they they had their best ever do you know what I mean so it's very much dependent on how you've done I was in um, I was in Colombia and they qualified after
3: getting a 1-1 draw with Peru and the whole country was alive. For them, it's an amazing thing. It's totally different to the feeling that we have here where people just can't be bothered with it. And it is totally dependent on the country. Some places love it, others don't. And me, I will always love the World Cup. So what's next for you, Duncan? Do you have another book lined up?
2: Is that something you'd be interested in doing?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a few ideas for the next one. Um, I, I, you know, I want to kind of continue to to marry of history and, and numbers and, and that sort of approach. So, I think you know I only really touch the surface with this one, even with the Premier League. Um, but I think there's so much more out there so uh, i've got a few a few ideas that hopefully come to fruition pretty soon
2: it seems to be pretty positively received so far and I, I enjoyed james richardson reading out a quote on the totally football show which must have been a slightly bizarre thing for you having like a, a broadcasting legend like that reading out a review of a book that you've written i don't know that must have made you feel pretty awesome yeah. um where where can people get your book where uh, it should be in you? all
5: your favorite and unfavorite bookshops uh or you know the websites that everyone knows um so, yeah.
2: Is there a particular source where you get a, a, a better profit?
5: No, not particularly. Yeah. So, yeah,
2: just, just buy get it where you can. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to move on slightly um, away from statistics and on to tactics. And Nathan mentioned earlier that it's basically a year since our first Extra Inch podcast. And in that first one, we were speaking about Pochettino's tactical principles and ideas from his beginnings as a Bielsa disciple to what he did at Southampton and then his early Spurs 4-2-3-1. but this year's been quite different and i think we've always seen progression through Pochettino last year he brought in the 343 3, which worked superbly that was something that Bardi had long spoken of you wanted a back 3 for, for years three. um and this year we've seen him change again with a back 3 but with two up front or a diamond in midfield which again seems to be Slightly harking back to some of Bielsa's principles, although we don't have our wing backs tucking in, whereas Bielsa would always have, have done that. Um, but what what do you feel's next for Pochettino, Nath? What's what's the kind of next logical step for him, and and what do you, what have you made of these recent changes?
4: I I, I feel like he may well be um, sort of nearing the completion of his playbook. I think that um, with the addition of the sort of the more counterattack style that we've seen, I think we're going to talk about this later. But the more the, the counterattack uh, that we've seen against Dortmund, against Liverpool, against Real Madrid, um, and the three-five-two, I don't know what all he can do is um, find a way to make what we have got more sustainable. Um, I was moving away from this idea before, but after Dembélé came on against United, and I know that United scored, I do feel that we improved um so there's there's still that slight air of <laughs> we need dembele um so but yeah i mean we're we're still good without him i don't know i don't know what else quachina can do i think we're um nearing the end of his his cycle of progress
2: what do you see as the optimal use of dembele now in terms of what formation he fits best into um I think
4: he and en- I don't know if he still does. I don't know what his fitness is like or what the capacity for it is. I-, I think he enables the four-three-three, um, which is which allows sort of, three out and out attackers on the pitch and uh, allows the wing backs to really go forward. I think the best use of Dembele is saving him for the ultimate games. Even if he's fit, just have him hang around because he's so um, prone to injury. And Winks is such a capable backup that yeah, lock, put him in ice and, and lock him away.
2: Do you think he could do a job as the deepest-lying player, like the the role that Winks took on away at Real Madrid?
4: I think you want his ability to take the ball past players um, rather than stay deep and distribute the Mm. ball. So you're always going to prefer Winks to stay deep or Wanyama or Dieter or whoever. So I think think he's going to remain positionally where he is.
2: A shuttler off to the side of a more natural holding player.
3: I get the feeling from how Pochettino's setting the team up now is that this... This is the furthest away I think it's been from his team. He's constantly having to try and piece a team together because we don't have Dembele, we don't have Wanyama, we haven't had Rose, and we're constantly he's constantly having to put players in positions where they're not quite comfortable. And I think this is the most impressed I've been with him. I know there's been issues with um, recent games we've lost, but he doesn't have the team he needs. He needed an alternative to Kane, and we got Lorente and he's struggling but he's still managing to eke out the results and I think that is a big kudos to him for being able to do that because I think this is probably the weakest squad we've had at the moment Weakest squad? I, th- I think so the fact that he's had to m- kind of squeeze Sissoko into this kind of central midfield player because he's not he can't, he's technically not good enough to play in the, in a free behind the front man and to mo- move him into centre midfield I think it's the weakest because of the injuries we've got yeah. Yeah, and that's why that's what he's fighting against. And our recruitment was great. in Davinson Sanchez is an amazing player, but he didn't get the players he needed to really put his own stamp on and He's having to kind of fight fires constantly now. Do you have a feel for
2: Pochettino's style, Duncan? What 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 kind of impresses you about him as a as a tactician, such?
5: I think it's just his adaptability. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's you get managers who are uh, very good but they're very you know you, you know what Mourinho is going to do um he does it very well but it is a sort of you know one playbook really but uh, pochettino like guardiola they uh, well, guardiola is a bit more kind of you know set but in a very kind of advanced so i mean it i tweeted when City had scored a lot of goals uh, the other week, they'd that, that already equalled Stuart Pearce's City in the whole season. And you had a lot of people come back obviously saying, yeah, yeah, but they've had a half a billion and all that stuff. But it's it's not that, because you could give Stuart Pearce or Tim Sherwood half a billion pounds to spend. It's 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 people, it would, you give it to someone like Guardiola or Pochettino and, and it's, you know that's where they show their kind of ability, I think.
3: Well, Man City did give half a billion kind of to Mark Hughes and mm. he signed Rocker Santa Cruz and players uh-huh. like that. Yeah,
5: exactly. Yeah, Santa Cruz, The uh, only one season did he ever get into double figures for goals and it was the season just before Man City signed him for a <laughs> lot of money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I I have brought this up numerous times, but I feel like the one area in which he's lacking still is substitutions and I really enjoyed the article by Alistair Tweedale for The Telegraph um, at the end of October where he's talking about whether managers impact games with their substitutions and he pointed out that at that point in the season Spurs subs had only scored one goal and that was Mutis Hoko scoring in the 91st minute against Huddersfield when we were already 3-0 up <laughs> um, and also that we've, our subs have failed to provide a single assist in Premier League or Champions League games And the comparison was primarily with United, who'd at that point got 10 goals or assists by subs, now 11, as we know, only too well. And also the point that the average time of our first sub was in the 69th minute, which is the second-latest after Southampton. And our second substitution tends to come in the 81st minute and third in the 89th, and both are by distance the latest in the entire league. So he's making subs late, he's making changes late, they're not having an impact. Does that say more about the fact that he just simply trusts his first eleven more, or is it he doesn't really see what's happening in games until it's too late?
3: I think part of it is maybe that he doesn't have the bench he needs to be able to affect games, whereas Mourinho can throw on Anthony Martial, Jesse Lingard, these kind of players. We've got Sissoko, and Sun is probably a great impact sub, but we need him to start. So we don't have the depth, and we saw... um, in the League Cup game we bring on um George Nkudu who his doesn't look like a footballer at the moment. And that is unfortunately the problem we have at our club. We don't have alternatives and the one great hope that we that we all have as Spurs fans is Marcus Edwards is, is this amazing player who can be this um impact sub that we need. I
4: think he's still quite limited by his fitness regime and he goes into games knowing this player needs to be off before this time and this player needs to have 20 minutes so that he can build the fitness for the weekend. Um, So I think that dictates a lot of what he does. I do feel that this season we've maybe started to push towards more tactical substitutions uh, going on. I'm now going to struggle to think of an example at all, Um, but that's just the feeling I have.
2: Yeah, no, I've, I've kind of got that idea as well that he's he tried to change things up a little bit more and I think once Dembele's fully fit and can be trusted to to play a significant stint then with him and Winks, both in the squad you've got options there for what you can do in midfield which helps a little bit.
3: Winks was our impact sub. He would come on to close games off but now he's having to start as well. Yeah, And I guess when if Lamella ever returns to fitness he will have another option there. And
2: Lamella's... A- brilliant impact sub we've seen him numerous times come off the bench and have an impact not necessarily in terms of goals or assists but in terms of what he brings to the team in pressing in those last 15 minutes keeping the ball at the right end of the pitch and and stopping teams kind of countering on us um, so you're right that the injuries have had a massive impact I think on, on his use of subs
4: Llorente had quite a, a good substitution against West Ham coming on starting a bunch of fights to, to run the clock down I thought that was pretty, pretty yeah. good <laughs> use <laughs> of substitutions <laughs>
2: go on go on, and run about a bit and do plenty of shit-housing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like it. Expert yeah. shit-housing. <laughs> yeah. We've had some questions from, from listeners um, and we'll start off with uh, I know Alan Gilzine on Twitter who says, how and why has Pochettino changed our performances in Europe this season? I think you were sort of touching on that earlier, Nathan.
4: Yeah, I mean, essentially he um, is doing something that he's shown... Very little sign of doing before, which is to to play on the break. Uh, we we sort of looked at it a little bit before we played against City. Once we played against Arsenal once, but that struck me as sort of something that was thrown together uh, in order to get through the game. This seems like this is his his plan B. This is his this is what this looks like. This is our alternative approach. Um, something that we've seen this season. Um, yeah. It, it's as much about the quality of the teams that we've been playing there's a really strong top six in the Premier League we drew Real Madrid and Dortmund in the Champions League we're playing at Wembley which does seem to favour counter-attack teams but I think it's also about um the rise of high pressing in global football and our susceptibility to it because we want to play through our centre backs and if your centre back loses the ball to an opposition player they're through on goal straight away um so I think it makes a lot of sense for that reason, and that is why we're seeing it now.
2: Do you feel as though we're playing at a higher tempo in, in Europe as well? I thought last year we were slow, we were tepid. Um, it looked like we were trying to conserve energy, and I feel this year we've gone out... I mean, you know, you're right, we're counter-attacking, but we're counter-attacking at pace, and I felt like we
3: never reached top gear in any of the matches last year. I think there's a genuine focus on the Champions League this year. We're not going away... last year we went away to Monaco and we rested players and we're not resting players now Kane possibly might have been able to play against Manchester United but it was ruled out no, he's been saved for Madrid and I just think there's more of a focus on it now to try and get out of this group have you seen much of Spurs in Europe this season, Duncan?
5: Uh, I watched the Real Madrid game uh, and the Dortmund game, and I think just generally the Premier League's looking particularly good. And we've obviously got five teams for the first time, um, and there does seem to be a real kind of step up from the league as a whole. I think you could argue that both Barcelona and Real Madrid are, you know, not at their best at the moment. But same with the German teams as well. Um, so I think. You know, it's looking, and it is very cyclical. You need know, go back to the two thousands when the Premier League last kind of dominated the competition. It was with two managers, you know, Mourinho and Benitez who came in and really kind of set a style that then other teams in the Premier League kind of followed and it, and it was a template that worked for a few years and I think we're kind of at that a different template now but a, a similar sort of uh, situation
2: mm, Interesting, and would Pochettino be one of the managers that other teams would be trying to emulate do you think? I
5: think so yeah I think obviously him, Guardiola and Klopp as well you know they've all in different ways had a lot of success in Europe um, well Pochettino less so but you know I think he's kind of making a, a mark and uh, you know this season really is. It does feel different
0: mm.
2: Second question this time round is from lane to glory on Reddit who says what kind of role do you think momentum plays in football? It's obviously a separate discussion from tactics but it would be great to hear your views for instance would a win against West Ham have improved our chances against United in terms of the mentality of the players even though many of the players for the West Ham game didn't start against United any thoughts?
4: Um As a a tactics guy and also kind of a statistics guy, uh, we tend to sort of play down the intangibles. But um, if you've played football, and I recommend you do it, it's a lot of fun, um, (laughs) you can feel firsthand what momentum feels like. You know when you're on a run of good games and and things just sort of come off of you. And you know when you've had a run of bad games and suddenly you can't make a five-yard pass. So, yeah, of course momentum is a huge thing.
2: Um, I'm so so weak mentally that when I'm playing five-a-side, if I make one bad pass, that affects my whole game. (laughs) <laughs> that's genuinely Small if i make, a, if, I make a, really. if I make a good pass in the first five minutes i know i 'm going to have a good game or if I score a goal or something something good happens i 'm going to have a good game i'm 'm that weak willed got no no drive about me at all buddy i'm i 'm guessing you're a fan of momentum
3: yeah i'm I'm a huge fan of momentum plus proper it's not, football man. not just for proper football <laughs> man it's not just for the um players it's for the supporters yeah, as well totally. because if you you beat West Ham you You can almost kind of accept losing away at Old Trafford because it's one of those things. Uh, You lose at Old Trafford. Tottenham lose at Old Trafford. A lot of teams do. Uh, But if you beat West Ham, you kind of like can take it a little bit better. Instead, now we've lost two games in a row and now we've got Real Madrid and then all of a sudden you're looking at three... And then you've got a game, then it's the international break, and all of a sudden, the mood, how it was, changes completely. Momentum is massive. Yes. And there's a reason why someone like Mourinho will only use a certain number of players per season, because it keeps keeps the momentum, keeps the everybody flowing in the same way. And you could you could see it with some of our key players in, during the purple patch
2: we've just had. I mean, Kane was basically unplayable at, mm. at points in that spell we just had. Um, and hopefully he'll come back and be unplayable again, but that's clearly momentum. He's built up to that point. He hasn't just started being that good immediately at the start of the season. He's built slowly to that point, so that there has to be something to say about that.
5: I think we're in a kind of strange meta world now where I, I did wonder in August, because obviously we, we pushed out the stat that Kane has never scored in August in the Premier League, um, which we did last year, which you know, a few people took notes of, but became a big thing, this year, you know, it was on the back of paper and stuff. And you do wonder where... You know, there was a point when Kane was through on goal in one of your home games and you do wonder whether it's playing on his mind. Suddenly he knows he's never scored in the Premier League in August and it, it's kind of a world where, you know, as you say, you know, a few bad results go into an international break. Suddenly the whole atmosphere around the club is down and th- that will affect players and it is... Um yeah, it's kind of the, the two, you know, the supporters' world and the and the players' world are kind of merging a bit, I think.
2: Is anyone else feeling an apology coming on here? I, I feel like Duncan should be writing an apology to Harry Kane well, I, for, for <laughs> August.
5: Well, if he, you know, he did write in September. So yeah, right. right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you, you feel like it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, he's had a one bad August, so... And he might then read about that, and it it gets into his head somehow, and it, it becomes a psychological barrier in a way.
5: Yeah, I mean, players aren't immune. That you know, they'll read stuff and they'll um, they'll learn, and you can see it with other things. Well, you know, like the Merseyside like derby has got a lot of red cards, mm. and, and obviously it's a it's a local derby that will have some anyway. But you can kind of see players being like, well, this is a you know, I'm going to fly into a tackle because yeah. well, right. And going back to momentum, I, the, the absolute perfect example of that was Vardy's run of eleven. Yeah, because I mean. You know, going back to XG, the XG for some of those goals he scored towards the end of that run were, was pretty low. You know, particularly the one to break the record. He basically just, you know, hit it against uh, United. You know, beat De Gea at the near post, I think. And um, you know, he wouldn't probably wouldn't have taken that shot if he wasn't in such an amazing run. Yeah. And it's that kind of hot hand theory as well, isn't it? So.
4: Um, I don't believe that Wembley is cursed, but I do believe that it's played on the players' minds and that's why it's so good that we've now got a couple of results at Wembley to sort of wipe that sort of curse hanging over everyone's heads so that's that's an example of momentum in work
3: Football players are babies they would <laughs> use any excuse to not perform um, the year Ferguson said he was going to retire at the end of the year you saw what happened to that Man United team mm. that they, they stopped playing when there's a board takeover when there's Issues. The football player would use any excuse to just underperform. Red nap in England. Yeah,
5: exactly. Yeah, Chelsea the season. Mourinho after they won the title and mm-hmm. Mourinho got the sack. I mean, yeah, you know players can affect stuff in such a massive way and just yeah, it's strange.
3: So you, you, you got to stop. It's got momentum is really important. You can't let. Can't don't let players think. And yeah. um, do like I'll, in the in, Inter in the sixties? They're not allowed to see their family. They're not allowed to do anything. <laughs> Lock them up.
2: Poch has got. He's been pretty good in the past at turning things around quickly. I think where where we've had a, a mini blip, he's good at kind of getting the players back on side and, and making
3: sure the results then turn turn themselves around naturally. Yes, but I don't think we've ever had a set of set of games like this before. True, that I we've got remember. a horrible run. Yeah. Normally, and the international break is is yeah.
2: never a good thing when you're losing. You
3: don't want to have lost two in a row, then face Real Madrid. No, kind of absolutely. Um, sort of. We 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 spoke briefly about
2: the Old Trafford um, performance, but Nath O Seven White on Twitter says, "Is our record away at the top six a sign of the times, or do we lack the bite or punch in the bigger away days to get a result on the road?" And he's he's sort of presented the image that Sky have shown numerous times of Pochettino's. Um, away record against the top six and it's it's not it's not good reading i mean he had in 2015-16 we we managed six points in those games but only one win um 14-15-1 17 2 and obviously this this year we've only played the one match and have zero points so far but what do you think
4: um away to the top six is sort of by definition the hardest game if you play. Um, and I think that it's fine to set the expectation as, as an assumed loss. How many is it six draws in that time? Each one of those draws is is a worthy achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we this is kind of a statistical thing, but if you look back at the correlation between the team who has the best record against the top six or the top four or whatever, and the team who wins the league, there's not a huge correlation there. There are one hundred fourteen points available in the league and there's 18 away to the top six It you know it, it doesn't matter it's not it, it matters for momentum as we just touched on but in terms of, of winning the league which I
2: think is is what we're looking towards it's it's just not that big a deal Do you think it matters in terms of a statement which is the word that Sky always use when they describe these matches?
4: Yeah I think that's fair enough as again momentum we looked at and, and you're also robbing your opposition of points um, But but outside of that I just, I just think it's fine.
3: There's um one, one chapter in Duncan's book. I can't remember what year it is, but Man United lost away to Chelsea, Arsenal, um, uh, the other mm-hmm. big six, and they still won the league at a Canter. It's, it's, it, it, it kind of matters a little bit. It's making a statement, if you want to put it that way. But as Nathan said, those group of points are so small compared to the rest of the points
5: on offer that it doesn't really make a huge difference. I think it matters when it comes to kind of leaving a legacy so if you think of you know like when United won 5-3 at White Hart Lane you know if you're just going for your first title in a long long time you don't care like you say just get the points wherever you can win the league but then if you're trying to kind of build a legacy then you kind of probably do need to leave some sort of famous performances away at your rivals but Mm. yeah as you say it's not that important
4: We don't not have those we have the the 5-3 against Chelsea we have the 2-0 against Chelsea we've we've had a good uh, bunch of results against Arsenal uh, recently So there's uh, and the 4-1 against Liverpool so there's not a complete absence of, of those big game results um, we just don't have uh, an amazingly shining record
2: Our final question in this episode is from Jack Kirby on Twitter and we've got so much potential here to make us sound incredibly pretentious and smug. Um, Jack says, what tips would you give someone looking to increase their ability to read the game and develop tactical understanding rather than, ooh, he's run up and down a lot, oh, now he's done a goal, which is sometimes a level I feel my understanding is at. I like the, I like the way Jack worded that question. Nathan, any thoughts? Sometimes I feel that my
4: understanding is that level because you just get you get drawn into the excitement of the game and all you're doing is ooh and aah Um I don't really... I haven't consciously thought about how I think about tactics I I got into football a little late actually uh, and I'm a bit of a nerd so I was sort of naturally drawn to that side of things I guess I would say um, read up on a particular tactical concept and just um, bear that in mind with the next game so so Spurs like to force the opposition to play the ball long rather than let the opposition pass it about the back so just with the next Spurs game look at how they do that um, which sort of sounds like homework and if it feels like homework don't do it because it's, it's boring and, and it's,
2: it's encroaching on your experience of the game. Yeah I think that's a very fair point and again I really don't see myself as having a particularly high level tactical understanding more just a tactical interest Um, but I would say focus on a particular player you enjoy watching that's that's how I kind of got into that side of it so uh, one of the first players that um, that made me think this way was Michael Carrick I loved watching Carrick play loads of fans didn't enjoy Carrick because they couldn't see what he was doing so that made me want to prove even more what he was doing was having an impact so I looked at Carrick's Position in the in the grander scheme of the team, and kind of worked out the good he was doing, and ended up writing thousands of words on on forums that probably fifteen people read um, about how amazing Carrick was for for Spurs, and I was right, obviously. So um, there is that, but that's yeah, basically how I how I rec- recommend starting. Bardi, um, any tips?
3: Well, for me personally, if you go to a stadium, sit as high as you can. Um, it's great to sit behind a goal or low down. You, it's a bit more atmosphere, but you can't really see the game. If you go to watch a live football match, there's nothing quite like having a high vantage point to be able to see how the team moves. Um, that's what I would recommend anyway. To get your grips that way.
2: Anything from you, Duncan? Are you are you into tactics? Do you, do you find tactics interesting?
5: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I come from it uh, from a statistical point of view. So, I mean, I kind of I like looking at the data and then kind of retro applying that. To players, and so, for instance, Harry Kane consistently outperformed his xG for three years in a row. Probably isn't a one-season wonder. We can <laughs> confirm, but if you actually look, he he's not a player that scores stunning goals. I mean, he does a few, but he's just very kind of consistent. And once you kind of know that he is outperforming the average, if you actually then watch his shots and his positioning in the penalty box, you can kind of see he's doing stuff that to the naked eye he probably wouldn't you know it doesn't leap off the page but he really is kind of impressive and it's also something that's quite sustainable I think you know it's not like it's not like he's a player that relies on raw pace that could just go overnight like someone did Michael Owen did for instance so um, yeah it's like looking at little trends like that I think pretty good
2: Nice yeah I mean Kane's C- just super efficient i think that's what it comes down to he, he knows his strengths and he does his strengths so well and you know obviously he's got many strengths but that particular strength of just finding the bottom corner time and time and time again will stand him in good stead for many many years to come hopefully um as ever we we kind of have a section called further reading where we all kind of recommend an article or a book or a podcast something that we've read or listened to um recently should i start with nathan this week
4: yeah, if you uh, have listened to this podcast and are intrigued about statistics, then I recommend checking out chanceanalytics.com. Uh, it's a sort of a statistical uh, blog. It was down for a little while, but the site's back up now, uh, and there's a, a backlog of, of good stuff to read there.
3: Um, I watched a really nice um, documentary on YouTube by 442. It was about goalkeepers. A position I've always felt um, kind of. A, I, I do like. I played in golf for most of my life, so I do feel. Um, a bit of um, bit of love towards them and it was a really nice documentary it had um, a bit Arsenal heavy Graham Stack and Jens Lemon on it but there were other goalkeepers as well talking about um, how, sh- the, how kind of rare it is in modern football and the kind of different, different way they have to approach the game and look at the game it's um, 20 minutes long so it's a nice easy watch on YouTube
5: nice Duncan uh, reading a book called Beta Ball at the moment it's about the Golden State Warriors uh, in basketball obviously um, and how they basically went from being absolutely terrible to you know world beaters um, and it's very good from a sort of data point of view in the sense that it, it wasn't all down to data but it, it shows how a kind of uh, unified philosophy at a club as any sports club can kind of make a big difference, and you see that now with certain clubs in the Premier League, of which I'd include Spurs, you know, there's a very joined-up kind of thinking across the whole organisation which, you know, is a kind of virtuous circle. See, He's saying nice things now to win favour (laughs) among Spurs fans, isn't he?
2: (laughs) And rightly so. Um, And I would like to recommend um, the Academy Productivity Rankings 2016-17, which is an incredibly snappy (laughs) title, written by Um, a a guy who was trying to decide which academy to put his son into, and published by Training Ground Guru. So it's on the Training Ground Guru website, which is TrainingGround.Guru. It's a fascinating ranking of the eighty-six category one to three clubs. Wow, um, this is
3: peak win. No, no, no. This is <laughs> genuinely is that, a brilliant read. What was that title again? Because I missed it. Academy the first time.
2: productivity rankings, two thousand and sixteen. Is it in PDF format? Yeah. I, I, I imagine it is. <laughs> no, there definitely is. There, it's basically written as a, a journal article in a in an academic um <laughs> it's
3: not gonna ban that title. He needs to he needs to rework. You've got to search for it in Google Scholar.
2: <laughs> it is absolutely f- fascinating and Spurs come out of this incredibly well. So um it's interesting from that perspective. But I mean just the fact that Crew Alexandra, a ninth Amongst Category One to Three clubs in terms of their productivity, above many of the Category One clubs, which I think is just an incredible achievement. You know, maybe they need to change their priorities a little bit and, and worry more about staying in the football league. But still, I mean, who who can't admire um, t- can't admire that? And Charlton, who were in the third tier, became seventh in the table, is another huge success story. They produced forty-four professionals across the top five divisions, which I think is quite a staggering achievement. How
3: long does this go back, though? It's-
2: um, this is just for this year. Really? but okay. uh, So we're looking at players that are in the league mm-hmm. at the time of writing. Mm-hmm. But I, well. I imagine that it's been such a success that I imagine he'll do it year on year and, mm. and keep the data going. But it's really interesting. And I just like the fact that he was trying to find the best place to send his son as well. Um, and it kind of, it, in many ways, ties into the kind of general narrative at the moment about youth football and, and England's success in the Under-17 World Cup and how the changes that have been made um, a grassroots level across the last 10, 15 years and the impact of the, the fruit that is starting to bear. Um, there's a lot to be hopeful about really. Right. I mean, before we go, I just want to say a massive thank you to cave at SNK studios. who's who's housed us again. Um, cave's brilliant guy. Um, I recommend following him on Twitter. He's got excellent opinions on spurs and the studios. Phenomenal. If ever you need any recording space, then consider cave and, and get in touch with him. Um, Where can people find more of your content online, Duncan?
5: Uh, Well, there's mainly on Twitter, but uh, be that OptiJoe or my own one. uh, So you
2: you run part of the Optijo you run the OptiJoe account with others, do you?
5: Yeah, yeah, I mean, me and a a couple of colleagues started it in 2009 on a whim, and it's done all right. We passed a million followers last month. Amazing.
2: Such a success.
5: That's quite good. But yeah, I mean, you know, we obviously, we're everywhere as well, you know, we're Working with all the broadcasters, all the all the newspapers. So, um, yeah, I mean, p- people want to send in requests as well. We, you know, we're all, if we're always open to good ideas. So, feel free. Nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been
2: yeah, a real you. real pleasure to have you here and have your insight. Barty, good to see you back. Cheers, Wendy. <laughs> always nice to see your uh, your smiling face. Um, <laughs> and you are at Barty TFC on Twitter. Yeah.
3: And Nathan rebranded.
2: Nathan A.
4: Clark.
3: Nathan A. Clark. I have enjoyed um, Nathan's... Um, now he's got his face out there, he's getting... <laughs> and he Controlling. Controversial, yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone referred meant- to you as Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I did get called
4: Jesus the other day. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a Larry person and that's coming through now,
2: so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stick at it. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Feel free to give us some feedback, good or bad, and ideas for talking points in the future. Obviously, this has been stats-heavy, so we've done tactics, we've done stats Give us some ideas of what you'd like to hear next. And we'll be back in four to six weeks. Thank you very much for listening.
0: It's the in. It's the in. Clock. It's the in. It's the in. Clock. Oh, that was really interesting, mate, yeah. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.